This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, who is Eric Zemmour and can he take on President Macron? Plus, is the Prevent Anti-Radicalisation programme failing? And finally, what's it like to dine naked? First up, in our cover story this week, Freddie Gray looks at the rise of Eric Zemmour, the TV personality who looks set to stir up French politics ahead of next year's election. I'm joined now by Freddie and Sophie Pedder, who's the Economist Paris Bureau Chief and a biographer of Emmanuel Macron. Sophie, you're joining us from Paris. For listeners who might not have heard of Eric Zemmour, could you start by explaining who he is and, and where he's come from? Well, he's a well-known television personality, really. He's seen as a journalist, primarily, and an author. He's written a number of books over the years. He's very well-known in France, but he's also seen as a provocateur. I mean, he he occupies a kind of that space in the the media landscape where he's always the one who says the most provocative thing. And when you watch him on uh, TV talk shows, when you uh, see him taking part in debates, that is this this is the brand he's been building. So I think, you know, no one up until now has really seen him as a politician at all and I don't think even today he's quite seen in that in that way but he certainly has a brand and it is a brand that situates him I would say politically you know in some ways to the to the even further right than than Marine Le Pen and I think that's what's difficult to sort of get one's mind around you know she's so much occupied the far right spectrum in France for uh, such a long time that the idea that someone can actually try and make Marine Le Pen look too soft is is what's really shaking things up in in France today. Fred, you say in your piece that the Parisian establishment are eager to dismiss him as a rabble-rouser and a show-off, and he's been called far-right and fascist. Do you you think that's an unfair characterisation? I think, I mean, I think he certainly says a lot of very provocative things, and I think his language is occasionally quite Trump-like. I think there's a lot of Trump-like comparisons, and there is this tendency among uh, British journalists, American journalists, to always reach for a sort of Anglosphere comparison point, and that's probably lazy. But nonetheless, I've done it in my piece. I've said he's a bit like Trump and he's a bit like Boris Johnson. And the thing, something happened yesterday that I think sort of proves what I was getting at, which is that Zemmour was filmed holding a machine gun and he pointed it sort of jokingly at one of the journalists and said, reculer, reculer, and all the journalists laughed and everything. And then there was this weird sort of social media fuss around the fact he'd sort of threatened a journalist and things like that. So then he provocatively tweeted a heart with a picture of the Queen uh, holding a machine gun, very famous photograph of the Queen holding a machine gun, which is perhaps a nod towards the fact he's coming to Britain quite soon in a few weeks. I I think he's got this sort of social media trolling ability that is quite Trump-like, and he's got this ability to make the media have a complete sense of humour failure, which is possibly why he's generating so much interest. Sophie, do you think he has a genuine chance in next year's election? Well, I just want to come back on something that Freddie had said. I think this is right in that he has a complete control and mastery, I think, of the populist playbook. And the machine gun episode is an example of that. You know, he wants 
the image to be remembered uh, as well as the slogan. He wants to get a sort of prompt a sense of outrage on the part of the mainstream media. And he, he got that yesterday because that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to win sympathy among those who think that the media is, uh, you know, as a whole is, is beyond the pale. And that is what he succeeded in doing. To answer your question, you know, it's it's very early days in a French election. I think it's important to remember that every time you have an election six months ahead of of the vote. Polls often don't predict at all what's going to happen. And if you think back to 2016, which was six months before the last president presidential election that Emmanuel Macron won, the candidate who was top of the polls was Alain Juppé. Well, he didn't even become the nominee for the centre-right party that he represented. So I think one has to be very careful that polls are all over the place. His surge shows that there's an incredible volatility in French politics at the moment. People, I think, in France don't want a re- play of what happened in 2017 that's to say Macron against Marine Le Pen they want something different but they're not quite sure what the left and the right are both very weak Um, there are no sort of natural strong candidate alternatives and I think that explains at the moment the Zamor phenomenon so I think it's it's too early now to say you know whether or not he really is going to you know even make it to the second round of the election last till the very end uh, and i think extremely unlikely that he would uh, he would actually win the presidency uh, i think i think there's no denying that it's very early days and that it's very much an embryonic campaign but i, I think it's interesting that again to go back to the trump thing it was often said that donald trump was really you know running for president to promote his books and his brand I think Zimor is kind of the opposite in that he's sort of pretending to be running to promote his books and his brands, but everybody knows he's actually going to run for president and he actually has quite a serious, quite well-advanced campaign behind him. And the fact that he hasn't actually announced his candidacy is kind of a joke because everybody knows that there is quite a serious organisation behind him. There's a little bit, a fair bit of money behind him. He probably needs more. But, you know, he will be bringing out a manifesto soon. He has a, a kind of international support network. It's a, it's a serious operation, and I think to kind of dismiss him as a sort of clown-like provocateur is a, a classic media mistake. Sophie, how would Macron respond if he, if he did face some more in the final round? I mean, at the moment, Macron himself hasn't uh, announced that he's running, although it's quite evident that he is going to. I think that it's, you know, and he certainly hasn't made any response or any comments at all about Eric Zemmour and the whole phenomenon. I think that it it is it is somewhat more complicated for him. You know, there's this idea that it's the Zemmour phenomenon is uh, useful to Macron because it splits the far right vote, and therefore, you know, makes it's true that Macron's lead is now more impressive in the first round polling. But I think that it's more complicated than that. If you look at uh, where Zemmour is getting his votes from. Uh, Yes, part of it is from the far right, but it's also, there's a sort of right-wing, quite Catholic, conservative vote in France, which is looking for for a spokesman, I think. And in... Some of that is going to Zamor. This is not. This is a very sort of bourgeois vote. This isn't a vote, a sort of working class blue collar vote at all. It's uh, a vote that pr- a lot of it went to um, Francois Fillon, a candidate in 2017. It's a vote that was against gay marriage. It's a conservative constituency that I think Zamor could build on, and that also will weaken um, and it, and sort of explode the the whole landscape on the on the right of, of French politics. 
politics. So I think it just makes it more complicated in some respects for Macron because you don't know who he, you know, it's not at all clear who he would face if 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 he does go through to the second round. And against Samoa, yeah, it's it's you know he would be a complicated candidate. This is a, a he's a, he's a an, an educated uh, intellectual. At least he has a sort of veneer of intellectual respectability. He knows his history. Uh, he talks very in very straight, very simple terms, which Macron sometimes finds difficult to do. And it it would make him, I think, a a, a complicated adversary for Macron. And Freddie, what are his main political beliefs? Well, obviously, immigration is his big talking point. But of course, you know, Macron says pretty heavy duty things against, uh, the, you know, on the failure of France to assimilate Muslims. But nobody quite believes it from Macron. They didn't really believe it from Hollande. And they didn't even really believe it from Sarkozy. The thing about Zemmour is that people think he might mean it. And I think Sophie makes a very good point about the sort of people that like him and that are interested in him, and they are not people that could ever bring themselves to vote for Le Pen. In fact, I think I'm right in saying there are quite a few people who voted for Macron who are quite interested in Zemmour because they think he's something fresh and new, which is what, of course, Macron appeared to be in 2017. And Sophie, how are the media responding to Zemmour? I mean, is it a bit like Trump where they sort of don't want to give him airtime but can't fail to do so? Yes, he, you know, if you look at the 24-hour news channels in France at the moment, Zemmour is the subject of all of them. He's just become a sort of subject in himself. And, you know, his surge has become a, a phenomenon and therefore in the polls and therefore he, you know, rather than being a commentator on politics, he's the subject of political discussion himself. So I think that, you know, the French media was perhaps reluctant to take him seriously initially, but certainly now is is uh, very keen to talk about him, if not to excess. But, you know, it's it really is early days, as I said, and I think it's important, you know, once once he has declared his candidacy and once Macron has as well you know things change the the atmosphere changes the the scrutiny increases the a real kind of detailed look at what these candidates are standing for on all sorts of policies that Zemmour has hardly mentioned whether it's fiscal policy or energy policy or foreign policy you know all of these things take on a completely different sort of aspect so I think the media are treating him now as um he's become sort of almost the, the you know the center of all attention but that that is going to shift and and it i think there will be a much harder look at what he really represents a, a little further down the road i think if you, if you talk to his people though i mean they're very adamant that there is a lot more to him and that there is this you know manifesto that's coming out where he does have an economic policy he has spoken about his economic policies he wants to um, reform inheritance tax. He wants to change corporate taxation. He wants to reform the French healthcare system. He wants to change France's role in NATO. I don't think he's a, a pseudo intellectual. A lot of people want to dismiss him as such. He does have quite a broad range of interests, and he's very eloquent at talking about him. So I think I think underestimate him at your peril. And just finally, Sophie, do you think the rise of Zemmour is the end of Le Pen? I think Marine Le Pen has struggled this year because she had a bad regional election in June where she failed to take any of the French regions. Polls suggested she might. This was her real moment to sort of show that she still had it in her. And I think that that has damaged her uh, her image. And therefore, they are ultimately still fighting for a uh, chunk of the same electorate. And it's not... Zamor has perhaps a greater potential on the right, but she is, you know, one one goes up and the other one goes down. You can see it very, very clearly in the polls. So, you know, I think it is it's going to be difficult for Marine Le Pen to uh, fight back against this phenomenon. At least they, you know, it's 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 one or the other of them. I think. Freddie and Sophie, thank you very much for joining.
Next up, Douglas Murray says in this week's issue that Prevent is failing to tackle Islamic extremism in the UK. Douglas joins me now, along with William Balday, who is a Prevent coordinator. Douglas, in this week's issue, you write about what you say is Britain's fatal unwillingness to confront Islamic extremism, and you point the finger at the Prevent programme. Why do you think it's it's failed? Well, I say it's an example of a wider failure, which is an it's an example of the inability of Britain to deal with this specific problem. Nobody denies that there are other problems, other forms of extremism, for instance. But Prevent was set up in the wake of the 2005 suicide bombings in London in order to deal with Islamist extremism. And it swiftly morphed into being about all forms of extremism. Now it seems, in my mind at least, to be shopping around for new forms of extremism all the time that it can claim to vindicate its existence by looking into and we've basically we've lost uh, sight of the real project of what it was really set up originally to do. I, I think this is not untypical. It's not untypical in government. A project is set up. A program is set up. It decides to um, mission creep. It decides to land grab. And you know we are now sixteen years on from the point to which Prevent was set up. And it's simply, in my view, become a behemoth bureaucracy and one which needs to be very severely stripped back if it's going to retain any of the original aims that the project had. William, you work with Prevent. Can you explain to listeners how how it works and and what your role is in it? Yeah, absolutely. It's essentially a counter-radicalisation strategy. The concept is, um, after... As Douglas rightly says, after the, the London bombings in 2005, uh, these were individuals that were known to the communities. Um, they were known locally. There were concerns locally about changes in their behaviours, and nobody said anything. So the concept was, could we have a, a policy or a strategy in which people could feed into and say, well, actually, I do have concerns. I am worried about these behavioural changes. It was obviously focused on the Islamist threat because that's who the 7-7 bombers were. Um, and having referred someone in to the programme, is there a way we can bring them back from the brink so that they don't commit a terrorist attack. That was the essence of it. I'd just add that, of course, in in fact, it's not at all uncommon for people who have gone on to commit acts of Islamist terrorism to have been at some point in the uh, eyes of Prevent. What always happens is that there is a, a debate about whether they sort of slipped through the net. And of course they did. It's the nature of these things that that once somebody has carried out an attack, it's obviously been to some extent a failure of the system. I think you have to build into the system the fact that some people uh, will get through. There are many thousands of referrals and it's it's going to be impossible to keep eyes on absolutely everybody who's uh, suspected of extremism in this area. But I would also add just that there are these general questions about the focus of PREVENT which really, uh, I, I think, shouldn't go away. And not just of Prevent, but of the wider security environment. You know, I, I say in my piece in the magazine this week, eff- effectively what the, 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 the role of the security services, um, Prevent and others is in this area, is to find the needles in the haystack. But Prevent has spent recent years making an awful lot of hay. In other words, as it's expanded its remit, it's made more and more hay that arguably must make the possibility of finding the needles in the haystack 
ever harder? And these are very tough questions that I think Prevent uh, has to answer. Yeah, I think to say that the, the, the strategy has kind of evolved and it's morphed and it's grown is absolutely right. I mean, yeah, I don't disagree with your assessment there, Douglas. I, I don't think, I mean, you used the word sort of decided to sort of refocus on other forms of extremism. The phrase that we use within Prevent is that the, the, the policy at the local level is very much threat agnostic and you will deal with what, what comes in. Now, I've, I've never been shy about talking about Islamist extremism. I've been demonised as an Islamophobe, a white supremacist and a racist for doing so. But I've decided to put myself out there and have those conversations. And I think at the local level, we're talking about, you know, really dedicated local authority officials or officers who don't really want to sort of come under fire from from certain extremist organizations um so i I think they do sometimes they're very reticent about having those conversations so frankly uh, like perhaps i do but what they will do at the local level is respond to the referrals that come into them and and there is a process that takes place locally which is a a local risk assessment which is determined by local counter-terrorism policing as well as local policing and the intelligence picture they have on the ground which will tell them what the dominant risks and threats are so whilst prevent has has absolutely grown and gone in different directions in terms of different forms of extremism it's responding to what the risk assessments risks are telling it rather than consciously deciding let's try and move the goalposts because it's it's politically expedient or it, it seems it feels like the right thing to do uh, I don't think there's any misdirection there but I absolutely agree that the way it's kind of grown and evolved um, you know the, the independent review we're having now led by William Shawcross you know it's I think it's long overdue I think it's absolutely right that it's taking place but if I may say so you've just answered part of the question Will which is that I mean obviously I give great credit to you and others who are willing to have these uh, difficult conversations but uh, many people within Prevent, uh, as in the wider security apparatus of this country, are not willing to do that. And you've just described yourself what happens to you if you raise that question. So here we enter a very, very important and so far um, subterranean aspect of the Prevent problem, which is that if somebody like you talks about the thing that Prevent was set up to deal with, you will, as you described just now yourself, be described as an Islamophobe, perhaps even a white supremacist and more. By contrast, if you were to, for instance, deal with a referral that had to do with far-right terrorism, it seems to me very unlikely that you would receive any blowback at all, either within the system or without of it. So what happens over time, and I'm sure you know this very well, what happens over time is that people are much happier and find it easier to deal with any form of extremism other than the form of extremism which Prevent was set up to tackle. Because, of course, among other things, people have a great worry about reporting and referring people for alleged Islamist extremism because there is a potential price to pay, because they might suffer a reputational price, They might well find themselves the target of accusations of Islamophobia from various Muslim organizations and others. Whereas, you know, there are no organized movements that would try to uh, libel and smear anybody who was trying to deal legitimately and fairly with a far right extremist. uh, Any more than uh, somebody trying to deal legitimately and fairly with an eco extremist or, or, or any other type. So what we see is, and what we've seen for many years with this, is that there is a particular 
direction of travel, which I have to say, in my own view, has been deliberately created by bad faith actors from within the Muslim leadership in this country who have deliberately demonized the whole prevent strategy. They've spent years lying about it. They've done so in order to defang the abilities that the program has. And so it has had an impact in the system to the extent that somebody will knows that if you're going to deal with the extremism that prevent was set up to deal with, you have to walk through great fire. If you have to deal with any of the other supplementary extremisms, which have ended up being tagged on and have arguably dominated, there's no problem at all. Well, of course, in the end, that creates a very uneven playing field. And, and I don't disagree with you. And certainly walking through fire is, is, is probably the best way to describe my, my working week. And, and I, I would also agree that, you know, there are bad faith actors who have you know, boasted about trying to create a toxic brand out of Prevent. They're, they're very, very proud of that fact. I would push back slightly. So I, I have also been attacked for tackling uh, the extreme right wing as well. Um, I've been called a, a race traitor and, and apparently I'm going to be tried uh, in a public court and, and sentenced accordingly, probably with a noose. But that was, but that was from America and I was less worried about that. Uh, the, other right. attacks, the other attacks came from East London, which are closer to home. You know, I think it's fair to say that... You know, it, it is difficult to have some of these conversations publicly. Some of these less reputable organisations, uh, I think to some extent, have held some communities hostage. They've put themselves forward as representative voices when they are nothing of the sort. And, and people are afraid to go up against them. They're afraid to go up against them in their own community. Uh, and obviously there are some people working in counterterrorism who also have to sort of tread a very careful, a very careful line. Douglas, just to finish on, what, what reforms would you like to see made to prevent, if any? I think the whole thing should be massively pared back. I think it should be made to deal with the primary uh, issue that it was set up to deal with. And if it can't do that, the whole thing should be scrapped. This has now become a symbol of a wider problem within British responses to Islamist extremism, which is that attacks happen, people die, people say something must be done and government sets up as something. Uh, it's the same with the setting up of the Counter-Extremism Commission by Theresa May in the wake of the London Bridge attack and the uh, Manchester Arena attack in 2017. Uh, really, what we see is a shelving endlessly of this problem by Britain. And I say in the piece that, you know, other countries aren't as backward and as incapable as we are of dealing with this issue, whether at the wider societal debate, the media debate, or the government and security service intervention in the debate, a country like France is, perhaps by necessity, uh, much further along the road of dealing with these issues. Uh, we in Britain, even after 16 years, have not even adequately settled on the language we need to use to describe this problem. Whenever a government official and even security officials and even prevent officials uh, appear in public, uh, they, they worry about using the terms Islamic extremism, uh, jihadism and much more. We get the sort of Islamic-inspired, you know, faith ideology. You get a whole word salad, which is not the point, or at least it's very sad that after 16 years that should be the case. Sir David Amos was killed by somebody. It's most likely that at least some element of the attack was to do with Islamist extremism, Islamic extremist ideology. And yet, look at the Commons earlier this week. Look at most of the tributes to Sir David Amos. They talk about online harms at best. They talk about online anonymity. 
If you heard most of the debate in Parliament on Monday, you would have thought that the late Sir David Amos died unnaturally early of natural causes. That is not the case. This country would not have a problem identifying the problem if Sir David had been murdered by somebody who had been referred to prevent for far-right extremism. And yet we stumble, we fumble, we don't even know the words to use or the appropriate language when it comes to everything to do with the area of Islamic extremism, which is what started Prevent Off 16 years ago, and which apparently sees it just fumbling off into the future, trying to rewire the minds of everybody in the nation and to pretend that everybody in Britain is always at risk of some kind of extreme ideology. It's woefully, woefully empire built and it should be stripped radically back. I mean, well, to pick up on your original question about you know, the, the future of Prevent, you know, I've, I've been grilled by William Shawcross and his independent review team. Off the back of that, I'm, I'm confident that it's, it's asking the right questions and very difficult questions of the programme. And you know, it's been a long time coming. It's been 10 years since we've, we've had a review. And perhaps if we'd had more regular oversight in that time, we, we, we wouldn't be having this kind of conversation right now. So you know, I would agree that we, we need to make sure we're focused on the, the dominant threat, um, but then not ignore other threats as well. Yes, Islamist extremism is still way streets ahead of the largest threat that we face, not just in the UK, but globally. But the extreme right wing, as in terms of around accelerationism, esoteric Satanism, these things are starting to, 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 to reach into very young kids. And you, you've got children, teenagers who are running neo-Nazi Satanist websites online and trying to con- inspire others to commit attacks. We, we can't ignore that. But we must also recognise that it is a much smaller problem right now than the Islamist threat. And I suspect that won't, that won't change. To pick up on Douglas's point about the language we use, you know, I will just sort of stress that, uh, or reiterate, that I do not shy away from using the, the right language. You know, it is Islamist terrorism, um, full, full stop. And I have no qualms about using that language. But the review is the opportunity to mark our homework, look at how the strategy has evolved, where it's come, where it's at, and more importantly, where it needs to be. But I, I would have no appetite in scrapping it because I still think that preventing terrorism is the best long-term solution as long as we get it right and we're focused on the right threats. Douglas and William, thank you very much for joining. And finally, last week, Cosmo Landersman went to a dinner party with a twist. All the guests were naked. Cosmo joins me now, along with Olivia Potts, our cookery columnist, to discuss what it was like. Cosmo, your piece this week looks at the strange practice of naked group dining, and you begin with a question as to why anyone would want to do this. Did you find the answer? Yes, I did. I think that a lot of people do it because, well, nudists like to do it because they feel create an environment where they feel free. For nudists, clothing are a form of shackles, no matter where you are. So it's best to get rid of the shackles and you can enjoy whatever you're doing better. Life is better with nudity, I think is, is their motto. Why would I like to do it? Well, it's not, you know, it has certain advantages. I see certain things. But as I say in my piece, I think nudity is best reserved for, you know, sunny beaches, lovely cold water and things like that. And what sort of people were there? Well, fantastically normal and straight people. There were no weirdos. There were no pervies. There were no, uh, you know, people like me. I mean, it was just very, very straight. Uh, I think nudism has become very gentrified. We saw this old idea that it's weirdos and vegetarians and people wear sandals and stuff. It's not anymore. And obviously, you've got to ask, what did you eat? 
It was very, I didn't really talk about it. It was like school suppers. It was like comfort food. <laughs> I don't know, it's because everyone was feeling so anxious. Liv, is this a phenomenon that you've come across? Um, not personally. Um, I, I'm happy to say, no, that makes me sound like a little bit of a prude, but I think on this I'm, I'm happy to remain a prude. And, and if you were catering for a naked dining club, what, what, what would you cook, do you think? <laughs> um, not hot soup, not anything that splashes. I think comfort food from that point of view sounds good on a number of different levels. Stodge, Stodge has less capacity to kind of um, cover you or your, your birthday suit while you're doing it. I think if you're sort of getting into that, that mode of dining and that mode of dining with other people, then actually, you know, sharing food or food that's quite tactile that requires you to, I don't know, slurp oysters or peel longestines or that kind of thing, that's, that's quite a sort of interesting way of eating, if that's if, if that's your kind of thing. Cosmo, did it feel at all sort of erotic or was it just quite... Unfortunately kind of not. Entertaining. No, it wasn't erotic at all. And the food thing was, I felt that the food was almost secondary. You know, nudity did not enhance the dining experience. You just think, oh my God, this dish is even better naked. I don't think it's really about that. And if you're serving food, you know, there's the, all the classic jokes that you make about, you know, cock van, uh, toad in the hole, spotted dick, all that sort of stuff <laughs> like that. It, it, you would think someone would slip one little funny dish and in nothing. there. And there, there was, was nothing no... there. They're, very, they're quite nudists. They're very serious about nudity. <laughs> you, you point out that there were more men there than women. Do you think we can read anything into that? I don't know why that is. It, also, it's an older generation. I think the, the nudist movement is having trouble recruiting younger people. So I don't know why. Maybe men feel less inhibited. Maybe men have, you know, those little schoolboy minds of theirs. I, I don't know. Liv, has, has Cosmo's piece made you want to consider hosting or catering for a nude dinner party? Um, I, I can't lie. I'm very glad that Cosmo has experienced it and that I don't have to as either diner or chef, if I'm, if I'm completely honest. I think, I think there, are, there are different ways of dining that are more about the experience itself than the food. You know, dining in the dark, some of the more immersive or theatrical supper clubs. But I think, you know, at the heart of it, as both a chef and a customer, I'm just quite greedy and I like the food and I like the focus to be on the food. And the moment you are either turning off the lights or stripping off clothes or there's, you know, someone miming or acting in front of you, then, then that becomes, as Cosmo says, secondary to, to the whole experience. But the, I noticed that uh, at the meal, the staff who were serving were all clothed. And, and they were very, uh, very, they would always just look you straight in the eye. They were very careful not to look anywhere else. Were they wearing masks? <laughs> no, they weren't wearing masks. And there's a whole, there's a whole thing uh, amongst nudists about dining etiquette, about foods you shouldn't be careful about, be careful, you know, about soups, what you were saying, about mm-hmm. leaning over in case of, you know, slippage and, and various things like that. So those areas are well covered. You, you say in your piece, you, you talk about how you obviously arrive clothed and everyone then takes off their clothes. Was that the most awkward moment? Or was yeah, that kind of other awkward most, awkward moment? Mo- <laughs> most awkward moment of my life. I don't particularly like getting nude just in front of me. You know, I, don't, I keep the lights down. But I, as I say in the piece, it's like wild swimming. You just, you know, you just go for it. Just get it off there and get it done. Don't, don't try to tip your toe and just take a shoe off. Once you leap in, it feels kind of good. 
And do you think, I mean, can you imagine sort of nudism coming back as a kind of, tra- you obviously talk about it being bigger in the 1930s and I guess in the kind of 70s. Do you think we're about to see a revival? Well, I can, I can see that happening. I think it, in the dining world, there's a th- new movement of, you know, the, what they call the experience economy. And I think it has a niche there that will slowly grow. I think younger people will probably embrace it, you know, as a part of nature, get back to nature, let us be at one with the earth and all that kind of stuff. So it has a lot of potential. What it doesn't have is good food. (laughs) And that's where you come in, Olivia. (laughs) Liv, just finally, if you were catering for one of these things, can you just give us your kind of ideal menu that you would would cater for? Just in case anyone's listening and is... Oh, well, you know, now now I'm sad that they wouldn't all be euphemisms or puns based on on what Cosmo said before. Um, I think... Cold food, salads. I think it has to be cold. You know, I think think you're looking at, you know, like, as you say, salads, pate seems safe. (laughs) Um, Cheese, I think it's safe. I think anything that has the ability to burn, absolutely not. Nothing that can squirt. Um, Napkins or no. Your clothes aren't going to get dirty, they say, it's actually... That's true, that's true. Well, then, you know, maybe, maybe it's time to break out ice cream with various different childish chocolate sauces and monkey blood and that kind of thing and just go wild. And Cosmo, would you, would you do it again? No. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I think it's one of those things you try everything once. I've done my, I've done my bit for nudity and I'm going to retire gracefully. <laughs> Thank you, Cosmo and Liv. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read everything we've discussed. If you become a subscriber today, you can get 12 weeks of the magazine for £12 delivered to your door, along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Laura Prendergast, and thank you for listening. Do join us again next week.